open to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. That was probably much more than you wanted to know. Okay, when you get to Psalm 50, can you believe we've gone through 50 psalms so far? One third of the psalms we, have, we will have covered after today, which to me as a Bible teacher is amazing. I mean, I would never think I would have done that. So, And the first thing you'll notice when you look at Psalm 50 is it has 23 verses. That's quite a few verses, but I believe we can cover them if you'll just allow me to set up the psalm for you in advance. Okay? Uh, so there are a few features you need to realize about this psalm, and once you realize these features, we'll be able to go through the psalm very quickly. First of all, this is a psalm about judgment. Okay? First feature, it's a psalm about judgment. Look at verse 3. He says, God shall come and will not be silent. A fire shall devour before him. This is a psalm that's talking about judgment. You see in verse 4, at the end of verse 4, he will judge his people. You see that. In verse 6, at the end of verse 6, for God himself is a judge. You see that? And then you see in verse 7, the second sentence where he says, O Israel, I will testify against you. So it's a psalm of judgment. Second thing you need to know is that the judgment is against God's people. Okay? He's not talking about judging the heathen, but he's talking about his people. You see that at the end of verse 4, it says he shall judge his people. Do you see that? And then in verse 5, it says, gather my saints. <clears throat> That's who he's going to judge. In verse 7, he says, hear, O my people, I'll testify against you. So, first of all, it's a psalm of judgment. Second of all, the judgment is against his people. Third, you need to realize that the people fall into two groups that he will judge. The first group are the moral, mindless people. <laughs> mindless, moral people. These are people that make, they give their sacrifices, but they do it out of routine. They don't do it for the right motives. Uh, it's like going into a church and singing a hymn, like most of us do on Sunday, and we're mindless when we do it. You know what I mean? Have you ever, that ever happened to you where you're really not engaged? So, first group is the mindless people. And uh, we see in verse 8, he says, I'm not rebuking you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings. These are people that bring an offering, yet they're going to be judged. Now, the second group he judges are hardened sinners. Hardened sinners, but they are Jews. Okay? They are still his people. And you see in verse 16, he says, But to the wicked, God says. Ah, so we have two people. Those that give their sacrifices, but just do it because that's what you do. And then you have the, his people that call themselves Jews, but they act like the devil. Okay? And they've gotten away with their sin so far. Okay? Now, I want you to notice also in Psalm 50, the superscription. You see that? It's called a Psalm of Asaph. Or a song, because a psalm means a song of Asaph. Now, there are 12 psalms that are attributed to Asaph. This is the first one. That is either written by Asaph 
or written for Asaph. We don't know whether it's written by him or for him. Now, who is Asaph? Asaph is King David's chief musician. Now, there's several Asaphs in the Old Testament, but we're pretty sure that this is the Asaph who's associated with King David. In fact, Psalm 51, the next psalm, is all about King David and his sin. So probably when these psalms were compiled, they said, well, here's a psalm that's by or to Asaph, David's chief musician. Let's put it right before Psalm 51. Now, let me show you a scripture or two about Asaph, and I think this is somewhat revealing. If you turn back to 1 Chronicles chapter 6, just go back about five or six books. 1 Chronicles chapter 6. Now, we've dealt with this passage before when we looked about the sons of Korah. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, you move down to verse 31. Verse 31. Here's what it says. Now, these are the men whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest. So David appoints some musicians who are singers or going to be composers of songs. And you see in verse 39, one of them is uh, a brother whose name is Asaph. You see that? Asaph. So here we see Asaph is one of these song leaders or song composers. If you look at chapter 16 of 1 Chronicles, you'll see something that I think is somewhat interesting. And I think it will be for you. And look at verse 1. 1 Chronicles 16 and verse 1. And so they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected. Then they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. So the ark comes back and an offering is made. Look at verse 4. And David appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to commemorate, to thank, and to praise the Lord God of Israel. Look at the first one in verse 5. Asaph, the chief. Do you see that? The chief. Look down at verse 7. On that day, David delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren to thank the Lord. And then all the way down from verses uh, 8 all the way to 36, you have a psalm that King David wrote. But notice after he wrote it, what did he do with it? He delivered it to Asaph. Probably Asaph put it to music. He may have uh, edited it a little bit and composed it or, you know, whatever you do. (laughs) I don't know what you do. But he did something. And uh, so Asaph gets it. Now, by the way, that psalm that David delivers to Asaph, from verses 8 to 22, they are nearly identical to Psalm 105, verses 1 through 15. So we see that Not all the psalms are written by Asaph. Some are written by David and delivered to Asaph who will put them in some sort of worship service when the Jews come together. Does that make sense? Okay, so now you know who Asaph is. A little bit. 
Now let me give you the outline of our psalm. So go back to Psalm 50 and I'll give you the outline and then we'll just sort of walk through the verses. Okay, verses 1 through 6. That's the first section of the first stanza of the psalm. And this is the announcement of a coming judgment. Okay, so in the first stanza of the psalm, the psalmist writes about a coming judgment in the form of an announcement. Verses 7 through 15, the second stanza. Judgment on the mindless, moral, religious people. (laughs) 7 through 15. Then 16 through 21, you have the judgment on the wicked people. The judgment on the wicked people. And then verses 22 and 23, you have what we would call the conclusion, or maybe it's an epilogue, but it's the final couple of verses uh, of the psalm, which need to be read together. Okay? So with that outline, let's look at the first section, the announcement of the judgment. Okay? Look at verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken. Now notice, it's not God speaking here. The psalmist is saying this. He's saying that God has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. God is issuing a divine invitation. It is being issued to everybody from the east to the west, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the sun. So this is uh, an announcement that God is going to judge. Who is he going to judge? He's going to judge everybody. Who is he speaking to? To the earth, the people on the earth. You see that? Look at verse 2. Out of Zion, out of Zion, which is described as the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. So we see that this judgment, number one, look at the verb, will, is in the future. You see that? This is an announcement of a future judgment. And somehow God has revealed this to the psalmist, and the psalmist is saying that God's going to judge, he's going to judge everybody, and it's from out of Zion, which is Jerusalem, that beautiful city, God will shine forth. So we see that God speaks to the earth in verse 1, and He speaks speaks from the earth. He speaks out of Zion in verse 2. Notice the words shine forth in verse 2. Do you see that? This means that God will manifest Himself in the judgment in some visible way. It won't be an invisible judgment. Uh, You will be face to face with God when the judgment happens. There will be some sort of either theophany uh, some sort of a, an appearance where God makes himself known. Now look at verse 3. And always notice the verbs. God shall come and shall not keep Solomon. When that day comes, he's going to have a lot to say. Okay? Up until this time, God has kept Solomon. That's very important that you get that. Because these people have sinned and they think they can get away with it because God hasn't said anything. But there's going to come a day when he's not going to stay silent. He's going to have a lot to say. You understand that? Verse 3. Look what's going to happen. A fire shall devour before him. It shall be very tempestuous all around him. This is a scene of judgment. God is a consuming fire. And when the judgment comes, he will come as a consuming fire. 
This is all said in anticipation. Uh, we don't know when this judgment's going to come. So, this announcement is a warning to the people that you better be ready when it does come. Okay, that's what you need to understand. Okay. And God is warning the people through a psalm that's going to be sung in their worship services. He's inspired either David or Asaph to write this psalm as a warning to the people that, hey, you may think that you can sin and get away with it, but you can't. There's coming a day when God's going to judge, and when He does, He won't keep silent. God is a consuming fire. Be forewarned. Okay? And then look what happens. In verse 4, He calls upon witnesses. Look what it says. He shall call to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. He's calling heaven and earth to witness. Uh, the, because he's going to judge the people. The Old Testament says, at the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing shall be established. So when he calls and judges his people, he's going to bring forth witnesses. It's like a court trial. And he's going to call upon heaven to witness. Angels. Do you know angels see you when you sin? You might not think so. And he's got witnesses here on earth, and he's going to call those witnesses. So when you say, well, I didn't do that, he's going to say, witness A. And you're not going to be able to get away with it. You've heard the old saying, if these walls could talk. You know, what would happen if your walls could talk in your house? <laughs> would you like them to reveal what you really do? <laughs> See, so when you think you can sin and get away with it, well, God's got His own kind of walls that He's going to call forth, and they're going to expose what His people have done. Now look at the objects of His judgment. Verse 5. Gather my saints together to me. Who? Which one? Those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. These are God's covenant people. When God established Israel as a nation, He established a covenant with them. He said, I'm going to make you my people. That's the phrase He calls them. He said, you shall be my people. The other people on the earth are His by creation, but Israel is His by a contract, by a covenant. And He entered into this covenant with them, and He said, under this covenant agreement, I will do A, B, C, and D. Under this covenant agreement, you'll do A, B, C, and D. And he said, do you agree? And they said, I will. And he said, sign on the dotted line. So these are people who have a covenant with God. And this is the first time in the psalm that God speaks in the first person. He says, gather my saints to me. All up through verse 4, it's the psalmist who's giving the warning. Now, God speaks. How has he spoke? Well, he probably has spoken to the psalmist and the psalmist is just putting it in first person. He's relaying what God says in the first person. So, these are his covenant people. Then he says in verse 6, Let the heavens declare... Now the psalmist begins to speak again. Let the heavens declare his righteousness. Uh, why? Why do they need to declare his righteousness in verse 6? Well, we see at the end of verse 6, for God himself is judge. 
you know, what you want from a judge is one thing. You want righteousness. You want fairness. You want justice. And he calls upon the heavens to declare that he's a righteous, just judge. He's not somebody who's going to wink at sin. He's not somebody who can be bribed. He's a fair God. He always does what is right. So when the judgment comes and his people are judged, it's going to be a judgment based on righteousness. And God calls the heavens to declare that he's righteous. And I think those heavens can declare it. There was a rebellion in heaven, wasn't there? Some angels were cast out. Was God right in doing it? He's going to say, did I take a bribe? Did I let Lucifer get away with it? No, no, you're just, you're fair. You're a merciful God. And so God is a righteous judge. He's qualified to judge. So, there's this announcement, and then you notice the word at the end of verse 6. Selah, hey, this should sober you up. Take a break and think about it. And there's probably the orchestra, you know, in the tabernacle has some sort of musical interlude and allows us to sink in. This is a pretty sobering moment, much more sobering than the way I'm presenting it. Okay, so now we go to the judgment of the first judgment announced of God's people, the mindless moralist. Look at verse 7. Here's what he says to that group. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God. Your God. So, in verse 7, he calls, gets their attention. He says, Hear, O Israel, I will speak. Now the word hear there means listen and obey. Listen and obey. Did you hear me? You say to your child, that means, hey, did you do what I said? And so listen or hear doesn't mean just to hear. It means that you hear. I want you to hear me and I want you to obey me because I am God. I am your God. So this is a warning to obey. Listen and obey. I'm testifying against you is a warning that God hopes will bring about and the psalmist hopes will bring about repentance among these people. He's not warning them to say, hey, I'm going to judge you and I'm going to just smash you like this. He's saying this to get them back on the right track. Every warning of judgment is an act of grace and mercy on God's part because He's giving you a little time to change. So, He calls out to these moral people. Now look at verse 8. This is very interesting. He says, I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices. That's not why I'm judging you. I'm not judging you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. This is not what they're being judged for. They have been faithful in bringing their sacrifices. They come to church every Sunday morning and tithe. You want to put it in modern context. He said, that's not why I'm judging you. Look what he says in verse 9. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your fold. He said, I'm not judging you because you bring the offerings, but they're not acceptable to me. When you bring them, they're not acceptable to me. Whether it's a bull, which would be a bigger sacrifice from a wealthier family, or a goat, which would be a little lesser sacrifice, they're not acceptable to me. I will not take them, he says. Look at verse 10. 
every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. So there's your famous verse of the cattle on a thousand hills. Every beast of the field is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds. Notice the difference. Cattle, now we come down to real little sacrifices. I know all the birds in the mountains and all the wild beasts of the field are mine. So, all the animals that are used for sacrifice, to begin with, belong to God. He owns every animal. It's an amazing concept here. He owns it all. So when you bring him an animal, guess what you're giving him? You're giving him something that's his already. That's not a great big deal, is it? That's not the important thing. So by giving God an animal, and it's already his, you're pretty much really not doing anything real important. So the important thing is not that you bring the animal. The giving of the animal is symbolic. It points to something much more important. It points to something beyond itself. It signifies something different. So we can say this. God doesn't instruct his people to give him sacrifices because he needs them, does he? No, he doesn't need them. In fact, look what he says next in verse 12. Very sarcastically, look what he says. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> you think, when you bring, what do you think I do with that sacrifice? Think I'm hungry? Look. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. You wouldn't be doing me any favors by bringing me the sacrifice. Because the world is mine. And all its fullness. God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our sacrifice. Look at verse 13. Will I eat the flesh of bulls? Or drink the blood of goats? And the answer is what? No, God doesn't do that. But what does he want? Look at verse 14. Offer to God, look at this command, offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the most high God. This is what God wants right here. So if you want to know what God wants, here's what he wants. Give God thanksgiving, verse 14, and pay your vows to God. There's two problems. Yes, they're bringing the sacrifice. But they're not offering the sacrifices out of gratitude. Yes, they're bringing the sacrifices, but they don't keep the promises. When they entered into the covenant, they said, yes, we'll do A, B, C, and D, and guess what? They're not doing it. See? So what he wants you to do is he wants you to give the offering out of a spirit of gratitude, and he wants you to keep your promises. That's what he wants. So, he wants us to give him a portion of what he provides us with in the first place. Everything is his, and guess what? He gives us something to eat, doesn't he? He wants us to give him back a portion of what he has already provided us as an act of gratitude. That's what he's after. He wants to know that you are thankful. And these people are giving God a sacrifice mindlessly with no forethought. They just do it because that's what they do. They go through the motion. 
in a sense. And then God doesn't want you ever to go through the motions when you worship. Only a sacrifice that's giving and thanks given and thanksgiving is the one that he will take. Or I should say the one that's acceptable to him. And he wants his people to keep their covenant promises. They promised that they would take care of the widows. They promised that they would take care of the orphans. They promised that they would not get put people in debt so they could oppress them and get their land. And they're neglecting their vows. Always asking them to do is do what you said you would do. Okay, now look at verse 15. And here's what he says. That's what he wants. Then he says, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will what? I'll deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So, another thing that he wants is when we get in trouble, he wants us to do what? Call upon him. He wants us to have faith in him. He wants us to trust him. Trust him. He wants us to be thankful. He wants us to keep our word, keep our vows, do what we say we're going to do. And he wants us to trust him. And not be self-reliant people. Not when we get ourselves in trouble. Say, well, I can, I'm just going to take the bull by the horns. Like Al Haig said, you know, I'm in charge here. Remember that? When everything was going down the tubes in America, Al Haig stood up and he said, I'm in charge. I'll just took the bull by the horns. The bull didn't stay still very long. He had to let go. <laughs> And he says, if you would just do that, if you would just do that, I would show up and deliver you from whatever the situation is, whether it be a war or whether it be a sickness, and in return you would glorify me, you would brag upon me, you would tell everybody that I did it, and I would get all the praise and the glory. So that's his announcement to the moral, mindless people. And the announcement of the judgment is to get them to repent and do what they say they should do, that they said they would do, and do what they should do. Now, he talks about the judgment on the immoral people of God. See, the other people were fairly moral. But now the next group is immoral. Look at verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes? Or take my covenant in your mouth? And the answer is none. You have no right to ever quote one of my laws. And you have no right ever to say I am under the covenant. Because obviously your actions don't show it. God wants more than verbiage. He wants more than a profession. He wants to see action. He wants Deeds. He doesn't want us to be hypocrites. He says to these wicked people, you don't have the right even to mention my name. Why not? Well, let's look at verse 17. Seeing, here's the reason, seeing you hate instruction and you cast my words behind you. Two things they hate. They hate to be taught and they hate what's taught to them. When a teaching gets through, they hate it. But when they gets through to them, guess what they do with it? Get rid of that thing. Because they don't want to live by God's rules. They want to live by their own rules. These are people who are defiantly 
rebellious, prideful people who want to live according to their own rules, not according to God's rules. They hate to be taught and told what's right. And when they do hear it, they toss it out. Say, ah, well, that, we don't have to follow that rule. Look what he says in verse 18. When you saw a thief, you can send it to him. Look at that. You saw somebody stealing, and uh, you allowed it to happen. He told you a plan, and you consented to it. He may have even given you something of the of uh, the spoils and the theft. He may have given you part of it. You have been a partaker with adulterers. Look at that. Notice what he's talking about is their behavior. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. They have chosen defiantly, arrogantly, the sin, no matter what God says. They don't like to hear what He says. And when He says it, they toss it behind and they act wickedly. And yet they claim, they quote the Scriptures, they quote the statutes, they quote the Ten Commandments. Yet they break the Ten Commandments. He said, what right do you have to quote the Ten Commandments when thou shalt not steal and you steal, thou shalt not commit adultery and you commit adultery? What right do you have to do that? And the answer is they don't have any right to do that. Look at what else they do in verse 19. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You break another commandment. You bear false witness. You shouldn't lie and yet you do that. Notice the word frame there. It's very interesting. Your, your tongue frames deceit. Uh, speaks of premeditation. This is not a slip of the tongue. This is actually framing the tongue. This is thinking through something. You think of how you can say something slanderous about somebody, a lie about somebody, spreading a rumor about somebody. And they do it. Then in verse 20 he says, You sit and speak against your brother. And this is a parallelism. The second line means the same as the first. You slander your mother's son. Uh, you sit and speak against your brother. Sounds like Psalm 1, doesn't it? Sit in the seat of scornful. Remember how we said Psalm 1 sort of serves as an overarching theme of the whole book? And here we see it again. This guy hobnobs with sinners. Now notice that the first group neglect their duties. Otherwise, they're fairly moral people. They come to church, they give their sacrifices. Uh, they do it for the wrong motives. They don't even think about what they're doing. That's one thing. But these people, these people are wicked. These people covert with sinners. They hobnob with sinners. They are aggressive sinners. Look at verse 21. These things you have done, and I have kept silent in the past. I'll let you get away with it. I didn't say anything when you did. He knew they were doing it, but he didn't say anything. Look at the middle of verse 21. You thought that I was altogether like you. That's a great one. You thought I was like a human being. <laughs> But God's not a God. God's not a man that he should lie. When God's, God is righteous, God's a righteous judge. You thought, you thought I was altogether like you. 
Uh, and that's what happens. We think that when God's silent, we assume that, well, we can sin and get away with it. We're not going to get punished. He's like, a, you know, our next door neighbor winks an eye when we do something wrong, or our grandfather winks an eye when we do God's not like that. Okay. So when God, when you sin, let's put it this way, when you sin and God doesn't judge you immediately, don't misinterpret that <laughs> to mean that you're going to get away with it. Okay. Look what he says at the end of verse 21. But I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Set what in order before your eyes? Well, it could be the Ten Commandments that he puts in front of their eyes, but it may be the, their sin that he brings right and puts it right in front of their eyes. He pulls out a big movie screen and in 3D he runs your life in front of you in 3D, and there it is, all the sins that you've done. He pulls out your own private set of Watergate tapes. And there's not a missing gap there. <laughs> Every thing that you do and I do is there, no missing gaps. So, why is he doing this? This is a warning, he hasn't judged them yet, but through the psalm, through this psalm, they are being warned. So, today, Joe got up and he said, we're going to sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. And when we sang it, guess what? Those who sang it, who chose to sing it, and those who didn't sing it mindlessly, when we sang it, we thought, that's a word of comfort. It speaks to us. The song spoke to us. We have a friend in Jesus. Well, this was a song of judgment. And it was designed to warn God's people that there's coming a judgment and it's designed to bring them to a state of repentance. Because God loves them. He chose them. They're precious to Him. And now we come to our conclusion. Verse 22. Or maybe it's an epilogue because of the way it starts. I'm not sure how we're describe Now consider this. Now consider this. You who forgot God. Consider what? Consider everything that I've said. Consider everything that I've said. Now consider this. You who forgot God, lest I tear you to pieces. Now if that doesn't drive the fear of God into you, nothing will. You better consider what's just been said. Or I'm going to rip you apart like a lion jumps on its prey. Wow, that's scary. That scares me to even say it out loud. And look what he says at the end of verse 22. And there be none to deliver. No one will be able to come to your aid. No one will be able to deliver you. Look at verse 23. Speaking to the first group. Whoever offers praise, gratitude, thanksgiving... Right motives glorifies me. Speaking to the second group, and to him who orders his conduct aright. That's the second group who stops that ridiculous, wicked behavior. He who, he's calling them to repent. He who changes in the first group, he who changes in the second group, I will show the salvation 
of the Lord. Starts off, announces judgment. But if they change, guess what they get? Salvation of the Lord. They get deliverance. This is a promise. So all your prophetic warnings of the minor prophets, the major prophets, are not set in stone as if now it's too late for you to repent. They are designed to bring you to repentance. <coughs> judgment and announcements of judgment are acts of grace. I imagine that the early church, when they read the Psalm 50, if they sang Psalm 50 in their worship services, they related it to the end time judgment when all people will stand before God and give an account. It's imperative that we preach judgment. When we don't preach judgment, we miss a major component of the gospel. In fact, I think it was uh, Daniel Webster, or Noah Webster, I'm not sure which one of the Websters was, who said, judgment is the sublimest thought that ever came into the human mind. Judgment is the sublimest, the greatest, the most wonderful thought that ever came into the human mind. And I started thinking about that, and I said, well, why would judgment be the sublimest thought? Because apart from judgment, there is no justice. Apart from judgment, every rapist, every child molester, every murderer, every evil person, and Adolf Hitler gets away with killing six million Jews and no punishment. It is the sublimest thought because in the end, judgment produces justice. And that's what God wants. He's a righteous God. Next week, we're going to look at a man who sinned with Bathsheba, David, and realize that he was ready to be torn to pieces by God as judge. And we see that what he does he falls down in repentance and cries out for God to forgive him. We'll be in that psalm next week. This Father, we thank you for a very important psalm that allows us to understand your mind, your love for us, your grace, your mercy by giving us a warning. We think of a warning ticket that we get when we speed and we're so grateful when we get a warning rather than the judgment placed against us. Lord, this is your act of grace. And Lord, help us not to be too judgmental toward others, but let us to exhort our brethren that we see sitting uh, to bring them to a realization that they too need to get back in line with, with you. And then Lord, most of all, help us to evaluate our own lives, examine our own lives, whether we really are worshiping you with the fullness of heart and whether we're seeking to live by your rules that you gave us for our benefit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.